if you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today on Horse Chats, we've got Brendan Bergen back. How are you, Brendan? Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> it's early here, um, so I'm a little bit not quite awake yet. But um, Oh, look, I appreciate you getting up early. What time is it there? It's six, and it was a bit of a late night last night. I was I was on a, a webinar last night, and it was one of these really interesting ones. I really wanted to sort of switch off, but I just couldn't stop watching. It was just really good. Okay. And, Brendan, is it still dark? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 coming light. Like I could probably I could probably ride in about twenty minutes if I really wanted to, but I, but I don't yet. So oh, look, I just think you know I'm sure all of our listeners appreciate the time and the energy you put in, you know, to get up early even and Thanks be doing these things. Yeah, yeah, Brendan. A couple of things. First of all, I've got to tell you that I used to brush my teeth with my left hand, you know, when I was thinking about having straight horses. And after the last chat we did, I've been brushing my teeth with my left hand again, and it's hard. <laughs> I haven't done it for tooth- quite a few did years. Did you get toothpaste all over your face? Yes, yeah, that, yeah, that's a common thing. I get back when I say, oh, go brush teeth with your left hand for the first few days, even getting the toothbrush into your mouth is <laughs> yep, difficult. Yep. So we, we think about how crooked we are, and we're trying to straighten our horses. You know, really, are we being fair? Yeah. What I want is, um, I actually haven't actually haven't looked at something I actually I'll actually write down here is, uh, is there any research into hand, handedness of riders and straightness of horses? Because I bet you anything, left-handed people, because they generally tend to be more ambidextrous because they live in a right-handed world, will have horses that are more naturally straight. But getting a, a, a credible sample size would be difficult for that too. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. I remember... You know, when I first went to the UK, I was at Cravat Park and um, Brian Young was there, the fellow of the British Horse Society, and he was an eventer. And he said that when he was, you know, high up and competing at a higher level, he used to play tennis a couple of times a week with his, you know, with both hands, but more so with his left hand. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, so I think that's when I started using my toothbrush in my left hand, but I think along the years I've just forgotten about it. <laughs> the other one the other one to try is... Um, uh, using your keys in a lock with your ah, with your left hand as well. Yes. Uh, even more awkward than a toothbrush because you just don't have. You're used to lining up with your right hand. And and I remember um, when I was in college, we did a a thing about handedness in one of my elective modules, and they talked about the way they would check out your left handedness or right handedness is they'd have you thread a needle. So they found a gender bias in that women. Uh, thread a needle by putting the thread through the needle, whereas most men do something different. They put the needle around the thread, and it's something I hadn't realized that I do. But that's if I'm threading a needle, that's what I do. I put the needle hole around the thread, whereas most women will put the thread through the needle. And it's just it's interesting. Like you think everyone thinks, oh, thread the needle is only sort of one way to do it. There's an act to it, but there's actually so many ways to do everything. It's just about um, understanding that that is the case. And the gender. I mean, it's the only Olympic sport where the males and females compete equally. 
Yes. I would contest that in, in all Olympic sports, we compete equally, but just not against each other. Okay. Something to think about. Look, this rider reset, we're not going to get the politics, are we, you know, about the great reset? No, no, no. You did, um, you did say it last time about, you know, the rider reset, and I thought that's great, but I hope we're not talking about the great reset. We just want to talk about horses. We don't want to talk about politics. No, no, you're right. No, you're right. Absolutely. Tell us what the rider reset is. Okay. Um, I suppose over the years I've come to the little bit of understanding of you stand and you watch coaches, particularly uh, young coaches or people who are developing their, their art or um, they're maybe stuck in their ways. And you hear common phrases like heels down. And my thought on it is if you're as a coach saying heels down more than 10 or 15 times in a session, you're probably teaching it wrong. Angelo Telton says a great thing about how horses um, learn. And he said, if the horse isn't learning in three tries, you're teaching it wrong or your timing is wrong. And I feel the same way about things like heels down or hands down. I think we have to get a bit bolder about creating devices to create a full body change. Because the reality is for heels down, for example, uh, it's usually linked with tip forward. If there's a heels down problem, there's usually a long reins problem, but it's actually not a long reins problem. Um, and there's usually a consequence gripping um, through the, the hip and the thigh. So the rider reset thought is, is something I sort of, I suppose I sort of coined the idea myself recently. I'm sure other people have come up with it too, but it's just, it kind of, I, I recently understood it when I was helping um, uh, quite a novice client who was, had a few fundamental positional problems that had blocked her for years. And I taught her years ago and wasn't able to fix them. And then in 10 sessions, we established a, a really uh, good fundamental position by using um, a set of uh, movement pathways, which I just call the rider reset now. And, you know, it's something that I started playing with in my own riding when, when I feel like, oh, I'm not sitting right or someone says, oh, your heels aren't down or your hands are a bit high. And I, I cue into this this thought. So that's that's kind of what it is. Okay. Okay. Now, just to get started, you know, thinking, because I always like to think that horse chats is for anyone that's got an interest with horses, but I know that some people are more interested in particular chats and particular people. So if someone's already got an established position, you know, they think they're well balanced, is this the sort of thing if they're already got that established postural and, and balance precedence? Is you know, is this what we're talking about? Yeah, well, I suppose the day you come in and you go, I'm there, I've got the balance, I've got the position, is the day you should probably uh, put down put down the saddle, put down the bridle and give up because, you know... I did mean their position's not moving a lot, but keep going because I totally agree with what you say. You know, I know all about horses. I don't need lessons type thing. Yeah. So when, when I say, when I talk about established postural balance presence, like you read the books and it tells you um, ear, shoulder, elbow, hip, heel. And um, you read the books and it says elbow, hand, horse's mouth. And those sort of thoughts are like the scale of training. That It's helpful, 
in evaluating where someone's position is at, but it's generally not helpful uh, from a coaching perspective. So I suppose I'm getting at with that is we should have um, balance over appearance, especially in the development stages. And I remember watching um, Lucinda Green did um, a five-part series called, I can't remember what it's called, but it was basically cross-country. And one of the things she used to say constantly is, I don't care what you look like. I don't care what you look like. I don't care what you look like. And I and I was very taken by that, that, you know, our sport is one of those sports, particularly in everything except dressage, where it, it really doesn't matter what you look like as long as you get the job done. So um, we have to think that you've got to move away from your prejudice a little bit and look at your individual balance. So um, I've never seen you, Glenn, so I have no idea what sort of height, uh, you know, proportions your body is. But um, I'm, I'm five foot 11 and I'm very long from my hip to my knee and I'm very long from my hip to my rib cage. So I'm long in the back and I'm long in the thigh. So anyone who coaches me who is not like that has to let go of their, their uh, prejudice. So I'm coached by two people. So uh, one person is Melanie Rin and Melanie Rin is, she's quite short. So she has to adapt what she understands by balance to me so that she can help me. And then the other one is Carol Broad, FBHS. And again, uh, she would be a little bit more proportionality-wise, height-wise with me. But again, she has to make sure that she doesn't let her personal prejudice get in the way of helping me. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I like the way you've explained that too. And I think there's been quite a few other instances where people might be looking at someone who's got quite big hips and small upper body or quite big upper, yeah, it does, it changes, it does change. And um, I love the way that you say, right, that's ideal for what you want, but, um, you know, surely we've got to be effective and we've got to be a little bit more in tune with the horse. So to move away from it for a bit, still think, oh, well, it's okay, that's ideal if you're not quite sure where you're going. But I do understand that just as horses are built in all sorts of ways, people are built in all sorts of ways as well. Absolutely. So these, um, you know, connecting the body to these logical patterns, I suppose. Tell us a bit more about that. Okay. Um, what I mean by that is that to look at the likes of the heel or the hands independently is not that helpful. So I try and think of if you want someone's heels to go down, for example, generally speaking, their upper body has to go back. And the other thing is, too, if you keep saying heels down, often the leg can be pushed forward, you know, with the lower leg too far forward that they are almost sitting back. And then I suppose if they're leaning forward again, it it is. It's taking the whole body into consideration. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Keep going. Yeah. So, So take the heels down. When you're trying to initially give the feeling of heels down, what I get people to do is I get them to hook into the neck strap. So everyone who rides at me has to have a neck strap. It's it's just it's non-negotiable because it's one of those tools that's it's just so useful. So what I do with with everyone, and I don't care if you're if you're eventing three star or whether you're learning your up downs as a beginner, if you hook your two fingers, I call them the bunny ear fingers. So fingers one and two, they should sit in beside the neck strap so that you can literally flick your fingers and catch the neck strap. And that 
and when I see people um, getting their getting their hands high, I'll just say hook the next strap, or we'll get on to the full reset in a minute. But hook your fingers into your neck strap because it means that when you lift your hands, you meet the resistance of the neck strap, and it tells you hands lie down, behave yourself. Um, in the same way as when you want to get your heel down, if you lean your body onto the neck strap, your heel will push down. It'll also push forward, and we're not necessarily looking for that, but when you come from an eventing perspective, having your leg too far forward is far preferable to having your leg too far back. Especially if the horse knocks the jump or something, you know, just touches the jump, yeah. Yeah, like if they catch if they catch a front leg on, on a solid and your legs are forward, you, you, you might stay there, whereas if... If you're sort of half pitched out the front, you're gonzo. And um, I suppose it's one of the things that I see a lot in riding schools when riders are learning to balance and coaches are learning to balance them. Many coaches bring the leg far too far back so the rider feels over their leg. Whereas if they just hook them into a neck strap, then that deficiency in, in balance doesn't have to be fixed by putting the leg too far back, which is, you know, I suppose that's that's one of the things that I sort of fundamentally believe um, is the lower leg actually should be slightly forward, especially in the early stages, and we give the support from the neck strap instead, and that way we can we can actually help the rider develop a lower leg rather than what happens a lot is that in my experience is that they're taught to bring their leg back, which makes them feel more balanced, then they start pitching off all over the place. Then we teach them to put their leg forward and now they're in a, di a different balance. Whereas if you have them riding towards the same balance all the way through, it means that they have a better chance of getting it together. Yeah, yeah. So we're really looking at the body as a unit. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is the thing is, um, I often think as well about people um, learning to tow a trailer or as you guys call them, a float. Um, <laughs> yes. A float. And if you if you treat the... The, it has vehicle and float or vehicle and trailer, you'll never be able to reverse it. Whereas if you look at it as a full unit, that's when the reversing becomes easy. You have to think of the float's back wheels as the car's back wheels. If you're trying to back into a parking space, you don't really think about the front wheels. You think about where the back wheels are first, and then you think about where the front wheels are. So it's the same with the body. You have to think of if someone's body goes forward, the, their leg goes back. Okay, that's and that's the physics of it. You know, body forward, leg back, body back, leg forward, hands forward, bum back. They all link together, and we have to keep thinking about the whole unit and how that moves. And that moves us on to programming the movement patterns, which is the big thing. Is um, you? I suppose I, I suppose my brain is getting a bit convoluted here as I try and organize my thoughts. Tell us a little bit more about the programming movement patterns. Okay, so when I think of movement patterns, I go, the first thing is the foundations of the house have to be right. And that's where most coaches come from, is foundations of house have to be right, foot level has to be right. So if you get someone to lean on their neck strap, consciously push their feet forward and not allow them to stand up, they'll come into a really good cantilever balance, okay? Then what you do is you get them to do the same thing and then get them to stand up, right? So that's the first movement pattern. 
lean on the neck strap, push the feet, do it sitting down, and then stand up. The next balance is you do the same thing. You get them to then stand up. And then as they stand up, you ask them to push down onto the neck strap. So the neck strap is like a bicycle handlebar. You're pushing down on it. And what will happen next is they'll fall down. So then you've got to teach them how to, well, it's not actually you teaching them. They have to figure it out, how to stand up and push down. Okay. This is the first stage to becoming independent of the rain. And lots of coaches will say things when they're trying to disparage a rider and and whatever. Uh, Oh, you're dependent on the rain. And then there's a full stop. There's no, this is how you become independent of the rain. Okay. Once the rider can then address those two states of balance, then you can start to develop this into a pathway. So uh, what you start doing is you then have three different sorts of resets. You have the hook in and pull, and the hook in and push falls into that as well. You've got the hook in and don't pull, and then you've got the finger touch. That's, what I, that's the way I think of it. I have, I have sort of three. There's the hooking in where you're actively going to do a process. You've got the hooking in where you're doing it to cue up the feeling that you had as the start of a pathway. And then you have the touch your knuckle, which you'll do in your dressage test to try and make sure that you're sitting right. Okay. And I suppose that's the whole essence of the rider reset thought. And, that, and I suppose it brings us on to the, the tools for this. So the next wrap is, is an obviously really important one. And the other thing that I've I've been using lately for myself is um, a thing called a free jump collar. I don't know if you've seen them. Just explain it a little bit. Okay. The free jump collar goes on like a breastplate. So it, it goes, it's like um, an entry breastplate. So it goes around the front of the horse and clips onto the D-rings. And then it has two elastic straps that come up from that um, that have little sort of T's that you hold between your first and your second finger. Okay. So you're you're holding your reins and you're holding your your two T's. And what it does is anytime I'm a left hand puller, that's one of my things. I like to pull on my left hand. When you pull on the left hand, the breastplate, um, the free jump collar, elastically pulls you back and says, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Because if you keep pulling, naturally it hurts your hands. But you you don't pull on the horse's mouth. So what it does is it trains your hands to be down and quiet. And what it's done for me is it's changed the way my hands interact and it's turned my hands into a more forward giving hand, um, which I would never have gotten with any other tool. And and again, I suppose uh, it comes back to as well when you think about teaching jumping. When you start out teaching jumping, you get stuck with your distance. You go, oh, one stride is seven yards. I don't know what that meters. I don't work in meters. And when someone comes down and they can't make seven yards, what most coaches say is kick, kick. Whereas what we actually need to do is you need to change the equipment. So you need to bring it in a bit if it's it's likely going to be uh, too long. So you just bring it in a bit. Same way as I'm using this free jump collar at the moment to tell my hands, lie down and behave yourself. And once my hands are lying down behaving myself, so after about 15 minutes, I hook the collar up and I ride I ride without the collar and suddenly my hands are in the right place. And I'm all I'm all for using tools that help the rider. Um, I'm also all, all for using tools to help the horse. So I'll sometimes put a tail bandage around the back of the horse 
I'll sometimes put a tail band under the horse's belly and different things, but that's for another talk, another day. Um, I think uh, people who are, I suppose I, I would say, too classical about things think that, well, the rider should just, you know, behave and put their hands there. But, you know, with the best will in the world, uh, we only have a certain amount of RAM, random access memory in our head. So we have to sometimes supply another neural input to allow the rider to do their job better. Yeah. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot off the press notification. That is that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available. And the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. And I think you can have an ideal world too, but horses have got all sorts of history that they come to you with. Riders have got all sorts of history that they come to you with. And I think the, um, you know, the tools that you're using, the idea is that you're using them as a temporary to help fix the problem, they're not to be used forever instead of. Because the, the other sort of analogy I, I use when people go, oh, God, well, why do you always use an extra? And I go, well, why do you always use a seatbelt in a car? <laughs> yeah, it's the law, sure. But, um, you know, you don't intend to crash. So uh, the same way as, you know, that's why you'd use other tools to help you because, you know, you want to make sure that if, you, if something does happen, you've got the, the stuff in place. Yep. Tell me a bit about alternative aids. You know, the magic of alternative aids. Okay, so I suppose that that came from um, Angelo Tellerton, FBHS, and I think he's a PhD now as well. Um, and he, uh, anyone who's t- listened to Angelo's chats will, will be familiar with them. Um, he, he works and he trains horses onto a, what he calls a collar. And a collar is essentially... Uh, a special kind of neck strap that he uses. It's not that special. It's just um, his collars are, they have a um, sort of wire on the inside. He gave me one when I met him one day. He said, here, take this and play with it. So I have that. And it has sort of wire in it so that it's stiff so you can move it. But he trains all his horses that when he leans on the neck strap, they slow down. Um, and it's something that uh, he, can, he can fully control and he'll go jump a meter 20 round in just the collar. Yep. And jump it well too. Not just jump it, but jump it well. Yeah, really well. And the thing is, when you're, when you're using the collar, he doesn't have a choice. He has to jump it well because he, he has he has to have the horse set up and fully tuned in, and the cask, the conditioning has to be so well installed, which we'll get onto in a minute. But um, uh, when I talk about an alternative aids, what I mean is this: is that um, if you start using like neck straps, collars, that sort of thing. And you train your horse to slow down using a collar, a few things happen. First of all, it means that you have to use your body to to get the response, and that leads on to classical conditioning, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um it it sets your position up and it also sets your body so the horse can map over uh body tall, slow down. 
that's one of the alternative aids. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with classical conditioning, classical conditioning, sorry, we've got to make, mix these two together. It won't make sense. Classical conditioning is um, a non-associative learning. So, for example, if you go to the wild feral, feral horses in the middle of Australia or wherever they are, and you shake a bucket and they've never seen a bucket, they don't automatically know about buckets. So I, I recently got a, um, a yearling um, that came to uh, has come to us to have some foundation training and literally was a, was herded onto the trailer and herded off the trailer. So he didn't know about buckets. So we had to, you know, touch train him first and then teach him that we have food. So we're worth talking to. Um, and now he associates bucket food. And it's only taken about two or three days. So what I'm what I suppose I'm saying is classical conditioning and the idea of reset and pathways um, in the rider work through rider into horse. So as you train the rider to lean on their neck strap, adjust their balance, then it starts to become a lean on the neck strap, slow down. And then by putting pressure on the neck strap, you actually encourage the horse to tuck their sternum up and stretch their neck. So as you're coming down to the likes of a bank, a ditch, water, where the horse needs to look down and you need to slow down, you've got the neck strap there. You can slip the rein and lean on the neck strap. So you're still bringing the horse together onto a coffin canter or a drop canter, whatever way you want to call it, into second or third gear. You're still asking them to slow down, but you're giving them the room in the eye department to look down. And I suppose that's the... That's the magic of linking alternative aids together. And you watch any of the top riders and, and you know, um, when the rule came in in England, it's FEI as well, that neck straps had to be attached. Riders like William Fox Pitt were absolutely up in arms because he needs his neck strap. He uses it all the time, especially with his young horses. Now, he found a workaround in that his neck strap is now tied on with... Um, a hunting breastplate strap onto his D-ring so he still has his neck strap. And it's the kind of thing that we should never be too proud to use equipment to help the horse, no matter how brilliant we think we are. We've talked about classical conditioning. I think you've sort of explained that. Now, we're talking about across disciplines because we are talking about jumping and obviously dressage. Is this going to work across other disciplines? Absolutely, definitely. And I suppose... And one of the one of the issues is that um, uh, I, I'm I, I'm very um, in my brain I'm very jump involved, and that's because I was told by a trainer one time. Remember, the jump is the thing that can bite you, and I I went, oh, right, yeah, okay, fair enough, and it's something that's all stuck with me. So I put a lot of effort into, even when I'm riding dressage, into thinking jumping, and I suppose when you come from an eventer mentality, uh, eventing isn't dressage show jumping and cross country it's when you're doing your dressage and you're coming up your center line if you're an eventer you should be thinking it's a skinny i'm coming down and i'm jumping through the flags of skinny to skinny so you've got a if you think of their skinny being at uh, gx and d your center line will be all so much better uh, in the same way as when you're doing your show jumping you should be picking up a color on a fence and going this is the this is the one I'm looking for. And equally, when you're jumping your show jumping around, you should be in your canter that you would be using for dressage, which should be a meter ten show jumping canter. And if it isn't, it's not a real working canter. It's a joke. So, um, building this reset in across disciplines is very helpful. So, 
I find when I do dressage, particularly with young horses, I do a huge amount of neck strap. Um, I'm going to call it neck strap leaning because I kind of want you all to have a picture of that. It's leaning on the neck strap, not pulling on the neck strap. It's, it comes from your body. And it means then when I start to train them a more refined aid, they're linked very strongly with that uh, operant pressure and release on the neck strap, which will slow them, which will slow them down. And they start to associate that over to as I sit more upright. And then that links into the jumping and you sit more upright. You're trying to bring them together. You watch people going cross country as they come down to a coffin, their body comes back and the horse comes back to them. So that's how it all links. You know, it all links together. And it sounds like I'm just there going, the next strap is the magic one. It's not, but it's just, it's the best way to explain how to link it across. And it's, it's, it's the gearbox of, of the rider reset. Um, but the rider's got to have responsibilities as well, haven't they? What sort of responsibilities the rider's got? Yeah, well, I'm sure anyone who's heard any of my chats before is sick of hearing about the responsibilities. But we'll, well do them we again. need to know, yep, just in case this <laughs> yeah, yeah. is the first chat. And also because it's important. We need to go over it again because it's important to reinforce it. Okay, so um, I have I have my four rider responsibilities. And so far, touch wood, I haven't found a problem that can't be overcome by addressing one of these. So your first one is uh, to look and plan, or as we say to the kids, point your big fat head where you want to go. So you have to have a plan and you've got to point your head where that's going. Secondly is speed. You have to be going at the right speed for the right job. So like I said about the canter, the canter, if it's working canter, you should be able to feel you can jump a meter 10 on a horse that's 14, two or above. Number three is direction, and that's the horse's eye line. The horse's eyes have to look where they're going. And especially when you're going um, cross country. I was watching a horrendous video. I was on a webinar with um, Caroline Moore, FBHS, and she's the team coach of the British Junior Event Team. I think that's the right title. And she was doing a webinar where she was showing us videos of different riders riding cross country. So it was taken in competition. So we were looking at um, two star and three star. And it was so interesting. There was one rider who did the most horrendous thing. Uh, obviously, they had a horse that was very strong. So what they did was they pulled the horse's eye. They were coming into, it was rail, ditch, rail. That's what the, the complex they were coming in. I think it was at Blair. And uh, what they did was they pulled the horse's eye off the first rail. They looked at the rail and saw their shot. Then they turned the horse's eyes back and kicked for the stride. And you can you can see in your mind's eye what happened. The horse didn't have time to read it. And the horse rotationally turned over and the hind leg narrowly missed the rider's head, like literally by inches. And it was purely down to the rider did not allow the horse to see the direction. And particularly cross country, the fences don't fall down. Well, if they flanged or pins, they'd fall down, whatever. But there's a huge amount of force required to to twist and flangible pin and make it make it snap open. So we have to make sure the horse can see where they're going. And the final thing is is uh, balance. And I suppose that's what we're talking about. That's where the the rider reset button comes in. And the other thing to say about the rider reset that how how it links in is what I say to my riders. Uh, since I've started using the the term reset and the kids love it because you just shout reset at them and they um, 
and then you have strong reset, light reset, touch reset. Um, I get them to every time they pass a letter, they do a reset. And it means it makes, it, per, 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 especially kids, it makes them very dexterous because it means they, they hook into the next strap, they hook out of the next strap, into the next strap, out of the next strap. And you're programming that pathway for when they get in trouble. What they do is they hook the next strap. When they're coming into a jump, um, I get them to hook the next strap and open their fingers so that the horse can extend their neck, but they get to, they stay behind their hands. Um, because if you think of, if you get someone to anchor into the neck strap and then say, when you're anchored into the neck strap, I want you to stay behind your hands. Suddenly you've created this really secure rider that doesn't go um, pipping their body forward. So anyway, sorry, my thoughts are a little bit scattered today. It's, it's all going a bit in all directions, but sometimes it's just like that in my brain. So I apologize if it's hard to follow. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, no, I think that's good. But why don't we, you know, if you've done that, why don't we just evaluate the process? How could we evaluate the process of the rider reset? Yeah. So again, <laughs> we come back to, I have this framework that I use and it's framework pinched from other people. And, um, you know, I always, I always think of uh, learning as it's a process of theft where you steal the useful stuff from people and then you recombinate it into your, into your own thoughts. So um, we've got, uh, I have four sort of boxes that I, that I evaluate with. So the first two boxes come from William Micklem, FBHS, and they are the constants and the variables. So the constants are, uh, and these are to do with the horse, these ones are acceptance, calmness, forwardness, straightness, and purity. And the variables are next direction, speed, impulsion, balance, and timing. And when you, if you think about those, they link in with the rider responsibilities. Williams has them all separated out so they ha you can have the individual components, whereas I've sort of pulled them together because for me, it was too much. I had to have them a little bit closer boxes. Then you've got the scale of training, rhythm, suppleness, contact, impulsion, straightness, and collection. And we have to have that in there, even if it's only an evaluation tool. I find, Christoph would disagree with me, but I, I find that the scale of training is not that helpful for training. It's very helpful for evaluating where we're at. But as a training tools, improve your suppleness doesn't really mean a lot. Improve your contact doesn't mean a lot. Whereas, you know, improve your calmness and acceptance means quite a lot to me it resonates with me and then the final thing is is the shaping scale which comes from uh I suppose andrew's research and before andrew it was used in dog training along long before that um is basic attempt obedience rhythm suppleness contact and proof so that's kind of adapted from the from i suppose from the canine world which is i suppose who those who they were the ones who initially started using a shaping scale and Andrew's beautifully adapted that to the horse. And I suppose I constantly come back to my academic horse training books and my equitation science books. And, you know, I have Christoph's book on order. So the next time I talk to you, I'm, it's coming from England though. And with Brexit, who knows when it'll come and how much it'll come. <laughs> okay. um, hopefully by the time I talk to you again, I'll have read a bit of Christoph's book. At the moment, I'm, ju I'm, I'm just stuck listening to his chat which are very good, but I want to see it written down too. Okay, okay. You know, what you said before about stealing information from people and putting together and then that way you see what works and you're always, you know, because 
you and I are both going to go to exactly the same workshop, both see exactly the same things. You're going to get something out of it. We'll both get something out of it. But what I get out of it, what I remember, is going to be slightly different to what you do. So I think we've just got to keep getting all this information and mash it around and talk about it and because it's all important information and I think someone's going to be listening to this chat and they might pull out different information then the second time they listen to it they might pull out something else. So again, it's not just saying, right, learn this and remember it by heart. It's here's some more information and this is more information and a year later you might listen and go, oh, I'm ready to receive that information now. So I think it's very important to keep rehashing. I'm a bit of a learning junkie. So, like, I, I will go, uh, I'll listen to Christoph Hess's podcast. And then I'll listen to it again. And I'll, by the time I'm sort of finished listening to it, I've listened to it about five times. And because um, I, I'm very taken by uh, something Jonna said to me when I started working from here, for, for him years ago. Um, um, I worked with him for a few months. And he said, remember, there's nothing new under the sun. It's all just ideas reimagined, reevaluated, and looked at from a different way. And I, I, I suppose at the time I thought, geez, aren't you an ignorant shite um, saying that? But I've, I've sort of come to realize that, you know, that there's nothing really new. It's all stuff that's been done by the brilliant people all along. It's just we've gotten better about understanding it ourselves. Totally agree. Yeah. And John is, John is brilliant. Like, and, and, and please keep harassing him onto chats because um, I, I eat <laughs> his chats and I'm always yep. waiting for yep. the next one. For those of you who don't know, John has done, John has done like, uh, is it 20 chats oh, yet? Quite a few, quite a few. Yeah. Yes. And, yes. And they're just so insightful and they mm-hmm. come from such a, an amazing place of experienced feel. I just, I, I'm spellbound listening to them. Yep. Yep, for sure. Brendan, if people would like to contact you, what's the best way? The best way to get in touch with us is to to get onto our website, which is uh, bergenequine.com, and then all the contact details are there. We're also on Instagram or on, and on Facebook and all the rest, but it's all on the website, so that's the easiest way to work through to us. Yep. And if you missed that, just go to horsechats.com. You can search for Brendan. That's B-R-E-N-D-A-N and also Bergen, B-E-R-G-I-N, and um, you'll find Brendan's contact details at the bottom of his chats as well. Great information as always, Brendan. Great to talk to you and uh, chat to you again soon. Thanks, Dennis. Bye Thanks, now. Thanks, Brendan. Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 